Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ranit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Hamilton to talk about nasal obstruction and their treatment with rhinoplasty. Welcome back, Dr. Hamilton. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we start, I'll just make a quick note that we've broken down our discussion on rhinoplasty into two in-depth episodes. This first episode covers fundamentals and has a focus on nasal breathing, which is what we'll be discussing today. So with that said, to start off our discussion, what are the functions of the nose and what is the distinction between a rhinoplasty for breathing or for appearance? Well, the nose has several functions, and I think that's a really important question to ask because I think most people would say that the functions of the nose are uh, to breathe and probably olfaction, and some people might even then say that it's for humidification, and all of those are correct answers. But I think the other very important component of it is that it's central to the facial identity that people have, and I think that's also an important function that shouldn't be overlooked. And when a patient presents to your clinic for a rhinoplasty, what are the typical concerns they may have? Uh, Many people do have nasal airway obstruction. Uh, This could be associated with mucosal symptoms like uh, rhinorrhea, maybe from allergies or rhinosinusitis, uh, or they just may have a structural problem. It's really important, though, in that evaluation to look for all of the possible causes of nasal obstruction. And I tend to divide those into three main categories. There are structural problems, and those could be helped with surgery. Those are problems of the bone and cartilage, typically. There are mucosal problems, and those are things like uh, rhinitis, uh, whether it's allergic or non-allergic, smoking, acid reflux is often overlooked. And those tend to be better treated with non-surgical solutions uh, or medical solutions or lifestyle changes. And then the last category is sensory problems. And this is often overlooked. Uh, Luckily, it's uncommon. But sometimes you'll see people who have had a number of surgeries on their nose and you examine them and there's just, you're not sure what else there is left to do. And they are just convinced that they're not getting any air. And they'll often have really small turbinates and they're just not sensing the air that they're getting into their nasal passages. Solid understanding of relevant nasal anatomy is really important when discussing surgical targets in rhinoplasty. Could we briefly review the relevant surgical nasal anatomy and some of the anatomical terms we use when describing the nose? Sure. Uh, In general, uh, the anatomical uh, directions that uh, are often used in discussions of the nose are cephalic, which is toward the top of the head, or caudal, uh, which is toward the base of the nose. Um, And that, that just sort of helps you sound like a native rhinoplasty speaker. You could say cranial or superior, and those aren't incorrect, but uh, rhinoplasty surgeons would tend to say uh, cephalic or caudal. Um, Dorsal is towards the bridge of the nose, Um, and then anterior, which is maybe more toward the tip of the nose, or posterior uh, toward the nasopharynx. So that's helpful, and then certainly right, left, or lateral medial. So those are helpful words to have when trying to describe where something is in the nose. In terms of the anatomy, the most fundamental part of nasal anatomy is the septum because it is the foundation of the nose. Um, I think it was Cottle who once said that as the septum goes, so goes the nose. So it's really hard to fix a nose problem if the septum 
underlying that is not also corrected. The septum is made up of a couple of different parts. Uh, there's the cartilaginous septum, which is the more anterior portion, and that's the quadrangular cartilage. And then more posteriorly, there's the bony septum, and that's made up of several different bones. Uh, superiorly uh, in the septum, the uh, perpendicular plate of the ethmoid, more posteriorly and inferiorly is the vomer, uh, and then a little bit of the crest of the maxilla and a little bit of the palatine bone. But from a surgical perspective, probably the most important ones are the ethmoid, vomer, and the maxillary crest. Other cartilages in the nose that are extremely relevant to the pathophysiology of both aesthetic and uh, breathing problems are the paired uh, upper and lower lateral cartilages. Now, it's important to note that these are all, uh, in most people, contiguous with one another. So in other words, the septum is attached to the upper lateral cartilages, and the upper lateral cartilages are usually attached to the lower lateral cartilages at the area called the scroll. So if we exclude the sesamoid cartilages, you could say that there's really only one cartilage in the nose, uh, but it has different parts of it have different functions. And so for um, descriptive purposes and for purposes of deciding uh, what surgical things to do, we tend to think of them as being separate. The paired upper lateral cartilages come off the dorsum of the septum and actually go underneath the nasal bone cephalically for a little bit. Uh, and they also attach to the piriform aperture. And they make up, at least at the caudal end of them, what we tend to think of as the internal nasal valve. The lower lateral cartilages have different parts to them. And they have the medial crus, which starts between the nostrils in the columella. Uh, that then turns into the intermediate crus, which then turns into the dome. The dome is the fold, the sharper fold in the, cap in the cartilage. Uh, just before it makes a turn uh, cephalically and laterally to become the lateral cura, and the lateral cura sort of look like wings. The uh, lateral cura are really the primary uh, structural components of the external nasal valve. And so that's helpful to think about when diagnosing someone who has a valve problem, because an internal valve problem and an external valve problem will have different solutions. When thinking about the lateral cura specifically, I think it's extremely helpful to be organized in your thinking. You can look at the shape of them and you can look at the orientation of the lateral cura and you can have problems in one category or both. And so you will never diagnose something that A, you don't have a word for and you won't diagnose something that you're not looking for. So it's important to have these ideas before you examine the patient and to kind of understand where they are so that you can actually see them uh, because uh, then you can diagnose it. And then if you diagnose it, then you can fix it. So in terms of the shape, the lateral cruise could be either convex, flat, or concave. And typically when they're convex, the lateral end of the lateral cruise will curl back around into the airway. And so when you look in the nostril, you might see a little bit of a bump on the lateral nasal wall. When people have internally recurvate lateral cura, that bump can cause obstruction in its own right, and uh, the shape of the lateral cruise can be a little bit weaker uh, 
and more prone to collapse with inspiration. So there can be a static problem with the bump and a dynamic problem with, uh, with it not supporting the lateral nasal wall. Concave lateral cura can just narrow uh, the external nasal valve, causing obstruction directly, uh, and can also result in some weakness and dynamic collapse. In addition to shape problems, the orientation is really important to examine. This is usually examined uh, a little bit more on the uh, outside of the nose, and the most common thing that people are aware of in terms of the orientation is something that's called cephalic malpositioning. The best way to understand this is if you look at the lateral cruise, and along its length, you can think of it having a long axis, and along its width, you can think of it having a short axis. The long axis should head from the dome out toward the lateral canthus. If it's headed more toward the medial canthus, then we might say that it's cephalically malpositioned. In other words, it's pointed too vertically toward the top of the head. The reason that that's a problem is because that means that there is not enough cartilage in the lateral nasal wall, and it's then unsupported or undersupported. To diagnose this, these patients with cephalic malpositioning will often have a less distinct uh, tip highlight. It'll be a little bit, you know, sort of vertically smeared. They'll often have a more uh, vertically oriented ovoid tip as opposed to a round one. They may have some pinching in the uh, alar margin, and it will look often like they have uh, sort of a parentheses-shaped shadow. They may have dynamic collapse with inspiration. On the profile view, they may have a bit of a polybeak where the lateral cura are overriding the dorsum, causing some fullness. And they may also have some alar retraction because the cephalically malpositioned lateral cura are not in the lateral nasal wall pushing down on the alar margin uh, to hold it where it belongs. So you can see that cephalic malpositioning can have multiple consequences and it it often makes for an unattractive tip and also a poorly supported lateral nasal wall. So that's a long axis problem. And that's not to be confused with a problem with the short axis. Now, this one's almost always overlooked. The term that I have for this is sagittal malpositioning. Sagittal malpositioning is where the short axis of the lateral cruise is nearly parallel to the septum. So the plane of the short axis of the lateral cruise should be approximately perpendicular to the septum. It doesn't have to be exactly 90 degrees, but it should be a little more perpendicular than it is closer to parallel. When it's too parallel, that is a very, very weak orientation and it's very prone to collapse. And in addition, the more close it gets to being parallel, that means that the caudal edge of the lateral cruise is too close to the septum. So if you look in someone's nose, anterior anoscopy, and you see the caudal edge of the lateral cruise pretty close to the septum, that makes for a narrower opening, and that narrower opening is more prone to collapse with inspiration. So the solution to that is not necessarily to add a batten graft or something that'll thicken the lateral nasal wall, but it's to reorient that short axis of the lateral cruise. And I can tell you in a little while, uh, a couple of different ways that you can do that. Similarly, with cephalic malpositioning, um, oftentimes the best solution is to reorient that, but that's a bit of a technically complex thing. 
and there are some other solutions uh, that you could use if it's strictly a breathing type surgery uh, that won't necessarily change the shape of the nose too much, but can better reinforce the lateral nasal wall. So that was a lot of very important fundamental ground to cover in terms of the shape of the lower third of the nose. And I hope that for the listeners that that makes sense, I would encourage them maybe to rewind that part and listen to it again. And maybe even, this might sound corny, but close your eyes. And as I'm describing those things, try to imagine them in your mind or look at um, a diagram uh, or a photograph of the lower lateral cartilages as I'm describing that and try to envision some of those different orientations uh, in your mind. Because if you don't understand those concepts, it's going to be really almost impossible uh, to fix any of those problems. In addition to the more, um, you know, sort of the main players of the septum, the upper lateral cartilages and the lower lateral cartilages, there are some sesamoid or minor cartilages uh, that are out in the lateral nasal wall um, that are near the piriform aperture. They are embedded in some fibrofatty tissue that continues into the alar lobule. Um, the alar lobule has some structure to it, but it has no real cartilage in it. The other really important component to the anatomy of the nose as it relates to breathing that's often overlooked is the paranasal muscles. So some people will appropriately stent their nasal airway open when they breathe in, but many people will compress it. And so you can see this happening if you ask them to take a breath in. If you see blanching in the uh, nose or in the supraalar crease, if that becomes more pinched, uh, and you can tell that it's an active process, sometimes what people need to do is to focus on that and sort of almost to relearn how to breathe. So that's an important part of your exam because if someone has really aggressive nasal compression when they breathe in, you cannot fix that with reinforcing it with cartilage because the muscles are too strong. You'll, you'll do it and um, two months later, they'll be just the exact same as they were before surgery. So that should be an important part of your exam. I've actually uh, referred some patients with very uh, hypertonic nasal muscles to my colleagues in neurology for EMG-guided Botox injections, uh, and they found some relief from that. So that's just a testament to how much of a contributor the nasal muscles are to nasal breathing. We tend not to talk about them too much, so they're often overlooked. Overlying that is the skin, uh, and just under the skin is the um, vessels in the subdermal plexus uh, that are important to preserve when elevating the skin for rhinoplasty. And we often hear nasal anatomy broken down into thirds. Could we dive into these and how they're contributing to nasal structure? Sure. The upper third is structurally primarily the nasal bones. The middle third is really the septum and the upper lateral cartilages. And the lower third is the septum, the lower lateral cartilages, and the muscles. And then certainly the skin thickness changes in the upper, middle, and lower thirds which is relevant in terms of swelling uh, and in terms of needing to camouflage things uh, during surgery so that they don't show up afterwards. The upper third, um, way at the top, uh, is thicker skin. And I say skin, but it's really skin, muscle, smass, 
soft tissue fascia. The middle third is thinner, the area over the bony cartilaginous junction. And the lower third is kind of in the middle where it gets a little bit thicker again. Um, in terms of terminology, uh, we talked about the directional words, but there are other things that rhinoplasty surgeons will say that may not be completely obvious. We might refer to someone as having a short nose or a long nose, and the nasal length is basically that from the nasal frontal angle to the tip defining point on the profile. Um, and this is often determined by the mid face height. Um, it may be determined by the um, lateral cura. If someone has an under rotated nose, it may look a little bit longer, for example. Um, also, someone who has a fairly high shallow radix will have a nose that looks longer. I briefly mentioned uh, the scroll. That's the area that is between the lateral cruse of the lower lateral cartilage and the caudal edge of the upper lateral cartilage. Uh, sometimes that needs to be trimmed or divided. And the reason that you might want to do that is if you need to reorient the either long or short axis of the lateral cruise, if you're sort of bound up on that scroll, it's going to be very hard to uh, make any kind of maneuver that will move that uh, part of the nose. The other reason that you might want to do it is that it's a compound curve, and compound curves are pretty strong. If you think about folding paper or cardboard, you know, you could probably stand on the corner of a cardboard box, but it's not because the cardboard itself is intrinsically strong. It's because of that fold that makes it a lot more strong. So if you have a very convex lateral cruise and you're trying to flatten that out, you may need to divide the scroll in order to release that compound curve that may prevent you from being able to do that. There's a lot of specialized terminology we've talked about or may encounter in textbooks regarding nasal anatomy. Would you mind diving into this a bit? Sure. The keystone area is another really important part of the nose, and this is the area, um, there are different definitions for it, but I think that the most helpful one conceptually is the one where the bony septum and the cartilaginous septum meet. And the reason that that's such an important area is because if that gets disrupted or if that is not strong enough after removing some of the cartilage, either for a septoplasty or a septal cartilage harvest, that area of weakness at the keystone can lead to a saddle nose deformity or just a generally under-supported uh, dorsal septum. So it's really critical to keep that strong and intact. And there are a couple of things that you can do um, to maintain that. One is that when I make the chondrotomy for a septoplasty or for a supple cartilage harvest, I don't make the straight cuts that you typically see, you know, defining the, you know, quote, L strut. In fact, we just recently published a paper using finite element uh, analysis and basically computer modeling showing that you can really uh, increase the strength of the remaining septum if you add a little curve both at the top uh, of the chondrotomy near the keystone area, at the junction of the dorsal and caudal struts, uh, and then also where the caudal septum meets the maxillary crest. And that's really, really helpful. It's basically one of the ways that you can imagine the shape is it's like a shelf coming off of the wall, but with that angled bracket underneath. So the little curve becomes that angled bracket, and that allows the keystone 
area to have uh, some cartilage that works under compression as opposed to tension uh, to support the nose, and that's a much more uh, robust structural element. I mentioned the dome uh, earlier, and that's the the sort of fold or gentle turn in the cartilage that happens at the tip. And so there are two domes. There's a left and a right. And it's the transition between the intermediate cruise and the lateral cruise. The dome angle is the, um, if you were to bisect the dome along its uh, width, it's the angle that that makes with the septum. And so if you have a very acute dome angle, then you'll probably have a sagittally malpositioned lateral cruise. So the good thing about the relationship is that if you need to reorient or reposition that short axis, you can place a dome suture to reorient the dome angle, making it a little bit more perpendicular to the septum and giving yourself a much more robust external nasal valve. The sill uh, is another important area, uh, and primarily this is something that you don't want to violate unless it's very intentionally in the event of an alar base reduction. But we don't typically do that for breathing surgery. The sill is the continuation of the alar margin uh, toward the base of the calumella, and that should be a nice smooth curve. It's important both the sill and the area called the soft triangle, which is uh, the top part of the nostril where there's no cartilage. That's why it's the soft triangle. You really have to protect those when you're working endonasally, uh, because if you nick either of those with a scalpel, it's very, it's almost impossible to fix it so that it doesn't leave a little notch, and that notch can be very noticeable. So it's critical to protect those uh, and be very aware of those things when you're operating. One word that gets reused a lot in the terminology of the nose is the word lobule. And it's often confusing for people because there's actually three lobules in the nose. There's the tip lobule, which is just the general roundness of the tip. There's the infratip lobule, which you can really better see on the profile view. And that's the gentle curve that happens underneath the nose where the columella turns into the nasal tip. And the third one is the alar lobule, and that's the rounded convexity that is near the alar facial junction that is made up of fibrofatty tissue and has no cartilage in it. So it's important to not confuse those three different lobules because they're distinct anatomical areas um, that all have their own reasons for being relevant. The other terminology that's often confusing for people when trying to describe the nose is what's happening at the top of the nose. So you'll often hear the words nasian or radix or even cellian. And it's very confusing for people to understand what makes those things different. I'll try to explain it best I can here. According to the cephalometric literature, the nasian really is the nasofrontal suture. So that's a bony landmark. Many people will use it when describing the point of maximal concavity on the soft tissue on the profile, however. That is really best described as the cellian. And so it's easy to remember that, that nasian, nasofrontal suture, cellian, soft tissue. Now, the other confusing thing is that most people will actually refer to those as the radix. 
Now the radix technically is the root of the nose, which is the whole region at the top of the nose. But we tend to call the radix that point of maximal soft tissue concavity on the profile. So that can be confusing because people are using different words to mean the same thing, and it's just really unclear. So just to briefly summarize that, technically speaking, the nasian is the nasal frontal suture, the cellian is the soft tissue point of maximal concavity, and the radix is the root of the nose, that whole area. But in practical use, most people are going to refer to the point of maximal soft tissue concavity on the profile as the radix. So it's important to know all those words because you may read them on a test and it might seem a little bit confusing, but if you know how they're often misused, <laughs> it'll actually make it a little bit more clear. Many people refer to something known as a tripod model. Could you describe this a bit and how it contributes to nasal anatomy and structure? Basically, what this means is that the two lower lateral cartilages can make a tripod where the two medial crura make sort of a conjoined central leg of that tripod. And each lateral cruce, that's the singular, uh, cruce is one, crura is two, each lateral cruce is its own leg. And so you have the two lateral crura and then the two conjoined medial crura making three legs of this tripod. And so you can change the orientation of the nasal tip by manipulating the lengths of these three legs. So if you needed to uh, rotate someone's nose, you might want to make that central uh, conjoined medial curl leg either longer or stiffer and stronger. Um, in some cases, people will have very long lateral cura, and they will resist any attempt at rotating the tip. And so if that's the case, then you may actually have to shorten the lateral cura by maybe cutting them and overlapping them, and thereby shortening those other two legs of the tripod. So in some cases, you might shorten the lateral cura and lengthen the medial cura, and those actions together, for example, will rotate the tip. And you can do the opposite if you need to counter-rotate the tip, uh, but that's kind of the idea uh, behind that tripod model. And we've touched on this a bit, but what are some of the main surgical targets in breathing rhinoplasty? In breathing rhinoplasty, I think that the most common causes of obstruction tend to occur at the internal nasal valve or at the external nasal valve. And the septum plays a big component in both of those things. So the septum is sort of the central player with all of this, but when examining someone, uh, it's helpful not just to look at the septum, but also to look at its contributions with the internal nasal valve, for example. So the border of the internal nasal valve is the nasal septum, the caudal margin of the upper lateral cartilage, the uh, head of the inferior turbinate, the piriform aperture, um, and the floor of the nose. And this tends to be lined with mucosa. We tend to consider an angle between the upper lateral cartilage and the septum of about 15 degrees to be close to ideal. The external nasal valve is a different structure, or a different volume, I should say. This is made up of the maybe the caudal edge of the lateral cruise, but really the area under the lateral cruise, um, and the soft tissue of the alar lobule. Uh, the membranous septum, and the sill of the nostril. This area or volume tends to be lined with skin, 
this is where if you put your finger in your nose, that's probably about as far in as you're going to get it. A wide columella, due to having short medial cura, is often a contributor to external nasal valve narrowing. Similarly, having sagittal malpositioning, or that short axis of the lateral cruise, is oriented nearly parallel to the septum. That brings the caudal edge of the lateral cruise very close to the septum and makes the external nasal valve quite a bit narrower. In general, a spreader graft that is placed either just under the upper lateral cartilage where it meets the septum or in between the upper lateral cartilage where it meets the septum, that's going to address problems of the internal nasal valve. In contrast, some type of a batten graft, and batten just means to stiffen, so there are many different positions or shapes or designs of batten grafts, but a batten graft is something that in general tends to fix an external nasal valve problem. So if you want to organize your thinking, and this is oversimplifying a little bit, but most cases, internal nasal valve lined with mucosa, internal nasal valve spreader graft or butterfly graft, external nasal valve lined with skin, and that's more of a batten graft of which there are different types, such as a lateral coral strut graft. Some people will be very overprojected, and when their nasal tip is overprojected, that will stretch out the nostrils, making them very tall and narrow. All the reinforcement of the lateral nasal wall is not going to make their breathing any better. In fact, it may make it worse because if you're just adding bulk, uh, you'll still narrow that external valve. So, a lot of times, what those people will need is deprojection. So, you'll need to deproject the tip, and that causes the lateral cura to flare out and then bringing the uh, ala along with it. Um, and that opens up the nostrils and makes them a lot more round. Another very, very common problem is to have crooked nasal bones. And when the nasal bones are crooked, oftentimes they'll bring the septum along with it and makes that crooked. So sometimes you need to fix a deviated septum by also making osteotomies to straighten out the nasal bones. And then another thing that's often uh, overlooked is that in some people, they'll have a very under-rotated nose. An under-rotated nose causes the pattern of airflow into the nose to become much more turbulent because it can't travel uh, the typical desired path, which is mostly along the floor of the nose and between the inferior and middle turbinates. When the nose is under-rotated or the tip is pointing down too much, then it reroutes that airflow to go much more cephalically before it can go posteriorly. And so that extra turn makes it uh, harder to breathe because it increases the work of breathing. You can test this in patients who have an under-rotated tip by gently elevating it and asking them to take a breath. And if they say that it feels better, that might be an important part of fixing their breathing problem. And this is often something that happens as people get older. So in older patients, they may have an under-rotated tip. And so it's important to uh, uh, lift that up. I'd like to make a comment about the value of the caudal maneuver. Uh, caudal maneuver historically has been described as lateral tension on the cheek that opens up the external and to a lesser extent the internal nasal valves. This is often documented in examinations and things like this, but I really, in my opinion, I think that this is, 
has very limited utility because I have yet to meet anyone who doesn't like a caudal maneuver. And so if I were drawing a flowchart, there would be no decision point at the caudal maneuver because everyone likes it. This is in contrast, however, to a modified caudal maneuver. And the goal of this is to simulate what you think you might do with surgery. So for example, if someone has internally recurvate lateral cura, what you can do is take a small ear curette, and I would advise against using something bulky like a cotton-tipped applicator because that cotton tip will take up so much space in the nostril that any benefit that you might get from the modified caudal maneuver will be offset by the bulk. So use something really thin like that, like a little angled uh, probe or an ear curette, and just gently push on that little bump of internally recurvate cartilage, just simulating what you might do with surgery and ask them to take a breath in. You don't want to show them something that you're not going to do in the operating room because then they'll just be unhappy with it. So to review, the caudal maneuver is just pulling laterally on the cheek. It does not simulate what we would do in the operating room. A modified caudal maneuver is a targeted maneuver, whether it's to simulate a spreader graft or a batten graft or changing the shape of the lateral cruise. And it really should simulate what you hope to do in the operating room. And that can be, that can be a very valuable uh, predictive test. While most breathing issues are variants of normal anatomy, some disease processes can also play a part in nasal structure and function. In terms of differential diagnosis for these patients, what would you be sure to consider in patients presenting with nasal deformity? Well, in general, as I mentioned, I tend to group things into three main categories. As surgeons, I think that we tend to focus on the structural causes, the problems with the bone or the cartilage, for example. These are really important, but as surgeons, if we only talk with the patient about the structural causes, and if we hit an absolute home run in the operating room, there's still a likelihood that they can be quite dissatisfied with their outcome because they may have hoped that your surgery might fix their allergies um, or you know, their sensory deficit or something like that. So it's really, really important at the initial consultation to try to identify all of the causes of their sensation of nasal obstruction, even if you're not going to address some of them with the operation. So mucosal causes, the common things are things like uh, allergic or non-allergic rhinitis, uh, rhinosinusitis, acid reflux is often overlooked, smoking is very common, um, irritants, someone works in a factory or something like that, and they're just around things that irritate them and it's not allergies, uh, that can cause some swelling. So it's really helpful to, to get a handle on those. Um, as a little, you know, kind of shorthand trick, uh, you know, I often ask people if it's worse at night. Uh, if their breathing is worse at night, that tends probably not to be a structural problem. That's more mucosal. Um, and nighttime things might be a dust mite allergy, where that's the time that they're in bed. And so they need to use the pillowcases and the mattress covers. Um, laying down also can exacerbate acid reflux, so that may be playing a role. And the other um, tell for reflux that's not obvious, like heartburn, for example, is throat clearing, congestion just at night, or what many people will describe as post-nasal drainage. A lot of patients don't recognize that they might make up to 500 milliliters of mucus every day that they're swallowing, so they're supposed to have post-nasal drainage. They just shouldn't care about it. So if they're feeling that sort of <clears throat> that globus that makes them want to clear their throat a lot, that may just be a little bit of edema from acid reflux. So that can be a very important component of your evaluation. 
The sensory causes, as I said, are a lot less common. Uh, that may be due to iatrogenic things like over-resection uh, or over-reduction of the inferior turbinates. Uh, can be due to trauma. And I've even had a person or two over the years who seems to just have a congenitally insensate uh, head of the inferior turbinate. You know, they couldn't think of any injury or any reason, but when testing them, uh, I take a little uh, wooden stick from a cotton tip applicator and kind of twist it to break it so I get a little bit of a sharper end to it. And you have them close their eyes and just touch the head of the turbinate. And if they don't even flinch, uh, they may be a little less sensate than they ought to be. It's not a very precise test. Uh, but it can be sort of helpful, and that's about all that I have. Um, one thing that you can tell those people, though, is it's not necessarily a lost cause. There are some mentholated sprays that they can use that can sort of sensitize that remaining mucosa and make them feel like they're getting quite a bit more air in their nose. So you're not left without an option. It's just not usually a surgical option. The final category, and I, I saved this to last because this is the one that we tend to really focus on, is the structural things. Um, and structurally speaking, someone could have a congenital uh, deformity or an acquired deformity of the nose or the septum. Uh, might have been due to an injury. Um, might have been due to prior nasal surgery, which unfortunately is quite common. Uh, people might have uh, poor support leading to a saddle nose um, or overly narrowed nasal bones. Or maybe they had a septoplasty that didn't address all of the problem. Um, or uh, had a septoplasty where the chondrotomy and cartilage resection was done in a way that the remaining septum was so weak that it buckled to one side. So those are all reasons that the bone or cartilage uh, could kind of be in the wrong place. Um, a saddle nose deformity, as I mentioned, is a, a weakness of the dorsal septal support. And this can by itself be due to trauma, prior surgery. Uh, but there are some diseases that can cause this too. For example, uh, GPA, which formerly was known as Wegener's, granulomatosis, uh, relapsing polychondritis, um, leprosy, syphilis, uh, ectodermal dysplasia. Another cause of uh, saddle nose or lack of support to the septum is a perforation, which could be due to cocaine uh, use. So when cocaine is inhaled, it's a vasoconstrictor and can uh, kill the tissue um, in the central septum. And it's important not to overlook the fact that Cocaine is often adulterated with something called levimisole, which is a legitimate medicine and has legitimate uses. But because it will pass a cocaine purity test sort of done in the field, uh, it's often um, uh, cut with the cocaine um, to save money. But the problem with using levimisole for an unapproved use, such as diluting cocaine, is that it can actually cause vasculitis. And so if you see someone whose nasal mucosa looks really dry and inflamed and looks like they have GPA or relaxing polychondritis or something, you may want to consider that they actually have cocaine-induced vasculitis. So the perforation is not just the mechanical necrosis that happens with the vasoconstriction. They may actually have a disease process that needs to be managed before trying to either repair the perforation uh, or operate on their nose. So referral to a rheumatologist is very prudent because you don't want to overlook that diagnosis that may not be at the forefront of your mind. When a patient presents to your clinic for evaluation for rhinoplasty, uh, for nasal obstruction specifically, what are some points to focus on in your initial history? It's really helpful to look at the character of the obstruction. So is it constant? Is it intermittent? Is it unilateral, bilateral? Does it alternate? Is there anything that makes it better? 
And then we talked about the possible mucosal causes, um, and you want to run through that differential diagnosis. The common things again are allergic rhinitis, acid reflux, smoking, possible sensory causes, and the shorter differential diagnosis for that is something like empty nose, prior turbulent reduction, trauma. And you want to ask about a history of nasal trauma, a history of prior nasal surgery, uh, cocaine or other inhaled drug use, a history of granulomatous diseases, and a history of sinusitis. The other uh, relevant preoperative evaluation includes a thorough social history. So most people will often just ask about smoking or alcohol use, but I always ask them about their occupation and whatever hobbies they might have, because I've had people who I never in a million years would have thought played intramural basketball, and they do. Uh, people will you know, have contact sports like kickboxing. And so you don't want to do a complicated nasal surgery in someone who's going for the black belt uh, because they may end up injuring their new nose. You should do a thorough medical history, looking for bleeding disorders, prior surgeries. Uh, and if I have any um, suspicion that I might need to get cartilage from a rib, uh, it's also important to ask about surgery on the chest, which isn't something that normally uh, comes to mind when thinking about nasal surgery. It's also really important to ask about their motivation for surgery and the goals. So if, if their goal is, yeah, I just want the left and the right sides to match, that might be an impossible thing to deliver. Now, if someone has a very badly deviated septum and you can make them much better, um, as long as the patient understands that they won't exactly match, but they'll have two functional nasal passages, then that's okay. But it's, you have to give a little bit of a mini crash course, I think, in nasal physiology in order to get people on board because there are things like the nasal cycle, which are not obvious to patients, uh, that I think it's helpful for them to understand. You know, the Latin uh, root, you know, for the word doctor really literally means teacher. So I think that that's an important part of our job during the consultation. And moving on to physical exam, what features or landmarks are you paying particular attention to when assessing a patient for rhinoplasty? I think it's helpful just to start at the top and work your way down. It's good to have any sort of a format. It doesn't really matter which one it is, but just try to do things in about the same order. So you can start at the top of the nose, look at the upper third, and that's really the nasal bones. And you know, Are they straight? Are they, are they deviated to one side? Are they pinched? Are they widened? Moving down the nose into the middle third, you can look at the internal nasal valve. And the oblique views are really sensitive to look for a pinched middle third of the nose. So if you look at the patient kind of a little bit at an angle, uh, you can see if they've got a very narrow middle third. You can typically identify a dorsal septal deviation, uh, which is important to correct. Um, and you can use anterior rhinoscopy or endoscopy uh, to look at the internal nasal valve opening. And again, that's that angle between the caudal edge of the upper lateral cartilage and the septum. And then finally, the external nasal valve. You can look for static narrowing, so things like shape problems, such as internal recurvature, or position problems, like sagittal uh, or cephalic malpositioning. A wide columnar base is also a very common reason that the external valve might be narrowed. And then you want to look for dynamic collapse. And it's important to ask people to take a normal breath. They'll often want to demonstrate to you just how bad it is by taking a huge, fast, deep breath in. And even in the best of situations, that'll cause some external valve collapse. So in terms of setting expectations, that's another important thing to tell patients about, because if their expectation is that they'll be able to breathe in like that and it's going to move, you're probably not going to win. 
And we talked about the modified caudal maneuver. And again, that's C-O-T-T-L-E, named after Maurice Caudal. It's not caudal. That's often confused. Um, and using the modified caudal instead of just a regular caudal maneuver pulling on the cheek, because that doesn't really tell you too much. And then again, look at the muscles. Make that part of your exam. Look for overactive nasal tone or overactive nasal compressors. And often the skin will blanch in the supraalar crease when people are breathing in if they're compressing their nose. Is there any other imaging or workup you would want to obtain prior to heading to the OR? I think the most important thing is to get preoperative standardized photos. And I emphasize standardized because it's easy to get snapshots, but you can't always tell what was done during your surgery if the preoperative photos and the postoperative photos are using a different camera, maybe with a different lens, shooting it from a different distance with different lighting and a different background. Uh, it's for it to be standardized, you should be using the you know, sort of standard views of the nose, which for rhinoplasty are usually a frontal view, two oblique views, two lateral views with a Frankfurt horizontal line parallel to the floor. The Frankfurt horizontal goes from the top of the external auditory canal to the infraorbital rim, and you want that to be level with the floor, and uh, at least one base view. Um, I often get a base view and then a base view with them inspiring. I find that to be helpful. And some people will get what's called a skyline view, uh, and that's sort of looking down the top of the nose. Um, but the main idea is that you want to standardize the camera, the positioning, the distance from the patient, the lighting, everything that you can possibly control, you want to control for. You can't get preoperative photos after surgery. So I always get the pictures before the consultation because then I know that I have them and I can maybe even use them in the consultation with the patient. In terms of other imaging, a CT scan may be helpful, but I rarely order that if they don't already have it. Many people will have it because they've had prior sinus problems or injury. And so if they have it, it's great. Uh, but I don't usually order that just, uh, you know, just to have it. When approaching treatment options, could you discuss what goals you have and how you might go about surgically executing those goals? Yeah, that's a great question. This is really kind of where the rubber meets the road, as they say. So I'll just kind of go through these things as a, you know, based on the region. Um, you know, unfortunately, this topic, we could probably talk for about 30 or 40 hours about this and not hit everything. Um, but I'll, I'll try to give you a little bit of a, a targeted list of things that your listeners can read up on uh, to get more information. But in general, if you need to widen the internal nasal valve, you can do perhaps a septoplasty if it seems like the dorsal or the caudal septum uh, are bent and pinching. Spreader grafts will open up the area at the apex of the internal nasal valve. Um, you can also do what's called a spreader flap, and that's done in combination with taking down a dorsal hump where you use the excess upper lateral cartilage is just folded in on itself uh, and then sew that to the septum. Flaring sutures are placed through the upper lateral cartilage over the top of the dorsum into the other upper lateral cartilage. And when you tighten that down, it sort of um, suspends and supports the upper lateral cartilages in a more lateral orientation. A butterfly graft does a similar sort of thing. It's usually auricular cartilage that's laid over the upper lateral cartilages in the area of the internal nasal valve. Uh, and it's done to kind of make a sort of built-in uh, spring. You can also do an inferior turbinate outfracture or reduction, uh, 
And I tend to do out fractures in most patients. Uh, it's very well tolerated. It takes hardly any time. Uh, there's very, very little risk to doing it. Uh, and I think it can really be helpful for people who have a big gap between the bone of the inferior turbinate and the lateral nasal wall. Techniques to widen the external valve would include something like an Ehlers-Batten graft. Um, a common type of that is to make a lateral curl strut graft. Again, an Ehlers-Batten graft is really just a general category of graft where it's usually cartilage, it's usually autologous cartilage, and the type that most people just tend to think of is, is something that's just placed in a pocket in the lateral nasal wall. So an Ehlers-Batten graft, a free-floating Ehlers-Batten graft placed in a pocket can be helpful, but it's really important that you make sure that this patient doesn't have something like sagittal malpositioning, because if you just put a batten graft in someone like that, you'll thicken the lateral nasal wall and you'll probably make their breathing worse. A lateral curl strut graft is a strip of cartilage that goes under the lateral crus, between the lateral crus and the vestibular skin. And so it's, it's a little tricky sometimes to make that pocket, to elevate that skin without tearing it. Hydrodissection can be helpful. And when you place a lateral curl strut graft, you want to place it maybe a little bit oblique to the long axis of the lateral crus so that you get a little extra support out in the lateral nasal wall. You can do what's called a lateral curl flip-flop, and that's where uh, the lateral crus might be uh, concave, and you want to make it a little bit more convex. And so you can uh, cut that a little bit lateral to the dome and uh, flip them over. It's usually better if they're both the same shape to flip the left to the right as you're flipping it, as opposed to just rotating it along its long axis. And that's just because along the long axis, the lateral crus doesn't really have inherent symmetry. You can use a lateral suspension suture, but this is something that I rarely do, and it's really the last resort. And this is the only thing I can think of that sort of simulates a caudal maneuver. Uh, and this is something where you place a stitch, usually uh, to um, maybe the temporalis fascia. Uh, I tend to use it, uh, if I do do it, I attach it to a little MyTech anchor uh, that I place in the malar eminence. Um, and then I run a suture to the area of the alar facial junction and uh, tighten that down. Um, those have a bit of a propensity to extrude, um, and they maybe don't have the best long-term results, uh, but for some people it could be helpful. Lateral curl repositioning, whether it is fixing a long-axis problem, like cephalically malpositioned lateral curl, or a short-axis problem, like sagittally malpositioned lateral curl, that's a really uh, common thing to need to do, and it can be very, very powerful. You can narrow the calumellar base, and you can do this through either an external or an endonasal approach. And the way that I do this is I'll typically remove a little bit of soft tissue from between the medial feet, and then I'll place a uh, permanent suture, but buried under the skin through the medial feet, bringing them together. This can also lend a little bit of tip support. Saddle nose deformities. Uh, are also fairly common. And the goal with this is to restore support to the dorsum as well as uh, function of the uh, internal and external valves. It also can prevent um, progression of the weakening and sagging of the dorsum. Many people with saddle nose deformities will have reasonably good breathing, but some people can have 
some significant nasal obstruction due to contracture of the lining uh, that distorts the upper and lower, potentially lower lateral cartilages. So with this, the most important thing is to have enough material to reconstruct that. Uh, and that's really kind of beyond the scope of uh, this uh, episode. But costal cartilage uh, is helpful, and it's really critical to reinforce both the dorsal and the caudal septum when fixing a saddle nose. Caudal septal deviations are also really common, and they can impinge on the external valve. Uh, they can cause the nose to be deviated or twisted. And uh, this is something that often makes septoplasty or rhinoplasty surgeons a little bit nervous uh, to address because this is understood to be a very important component of tip support. And so you can't just cut the entire thing out. Uh, if there's a little bit of a deviated portion, I suppose you could trim that, but that's not really too common. The more common thing to trim when fixing the caudal septum is sometimes, um, you know, to use a colloquialism, the, end, the letter is too big for the envelope. And so when the cartilage is just too big to fit in the nose, it has to bend uh, in order to just stay inside the nose. And so if the cartilage seems like it wants to be flat, but it just happens to be bent, what you can do is trim a portion off the caudal septum where it meets the maxillary crest, and that will allow it to finally relax and stand up. Uh, and that's something that I do kind of commonly uh, because it, um, it, it just... It happens a lot, and many people will have had a prior septoplasty, but that wasn't done, and so the caudal septum is still crooked. So sometimes it's as straightforward as just trimming a millimeter or two off the base of the caudal septum. If the caudal septum has been overly resected, or if it's fractured, or if it's just in, in some way kind of unhelpful, it may be necessary to replace the entire caudal septum. And so when I do that, I'll extend my dorsal chondrotomy all the way to the caudal septum and leave that dorsal strut. And then I can take a piece that wants to be straight from further inside the septum and use that to reconstruct the caudal septum. And that's called a caudal septal replacement graft. And so that gets sewn to the dorsal portion of the uh, septum, and then it also typically gets sewn to the anterior nasal spine or somewhere appropriate in that area. Another thing that you can do uh, is what's called the tongue and groove technique. Sometimes people will have a caudal septal deviation, um, maybe because it doesn't fit in the nose, but uh, perhaps also it's just not lined up with the midline of the nose. It's just got its own little pocket off to one side. So if you can get that to be fairly straight and uh, flat, uh, it's important to make a little pocket between the medial pura uh, so that it actually has, uh, you know, sort of a home uh, at the end of the surgery that's it's not going to push itself off to one side. The swinging door technique uh, is just a, a kind of fancy way of saying that you're going to free up a caudal septum that is pushed off to one side and then be able to push it back toward the midline. And then extended spreader grafts or a septal batten graft are also a fairly common way that I'll fix um, a deviated caudal septum. A septal batten graft should not be confused with an ailer batten graft. Remember, batten just means to stiffen something. So a septal batten graft is a piece of cartilage that's usually placed on the concave side of a curved caudal septum. 
This is helpful not only to correct a problem with the shape of the caudal septum, but many people will have a weak caudal septum. And so if you can reinforce it with a septal batten graft, not only can you flatten it out, but you can make it stronger because it's now two layers of cartilage. It's critical to use at least three sutures placed in the orientation of a triangle when attaching the septal batten graft because that will keep the graft from pivoting or acting like a hinge. And you really want to have good apposition between the septal batten graft and the caudal septum. When we're talking about placing grafts in the nose, what are the different types of grafts you can use and reasons for choosing a particular graft type? Graft material uh, tends to come from, in, at least in my practice, three places. Septal cartilage is the one that I tend to use first because in someone who hasn't had prior surgery, it's already part of the surgical field. And it's got characteristics that are suitable for both bulk, uh, but also for something that could be thin and elastic and strong. So supple cartilage really has a lot of good qualities as a material. My second choice tends to be autologous rib. Uh, many people will say, oh, you should go to the ear next. Uh, but the only reason that I don't tend to do that is because ear cartilage, though it, we just still call it cartilage, is an entirely different material from the septum. Ear cartilage is curved. There's not much of it. It tends to be sort of thick and friable. And it can be used to reconstruct a caudal septum, for example, or for spreader grafts. It's, it's quite good for spreader grafts. But ear cartilage harvesting tends to be, at least in my hands, a little bit more painful than rib cartilage harvesting. And with the rib, I get much more cartilage. And the rib cartilage, at least in a younger person, tends to be very close in terms of material properties to septal cartilage. And if you use the periphery of the rib where it has that sort of elastic layer, you can get a really nice thin piece of cartilage that makes a very good uh, ailer batten graft or lateral coral strut graft or even lateral coral replacement graft. Uh, but maybe the central portions where they're a little bit thicker and maybe stiffer, that's great for a spreader graft or for a caudal septal replacement or something like that. So depending on which portion of the rib you use, you can really get different types of materials out of it. So my preferred order is septum, then rib, and then ear. Other things that you can use are um, irradiated rib cartilage, um, which has several studies showing good long-term um, longevity. Um, but at least in my hands, I've noticed that when it's under a fair amount of compression, so in other words, maybe holding up the tip of the nose, it may be more prone to resorption. The other thing that's important to know is that not all irradiated rib is prepared the same way. And so maybe the ones that are in alcohol uh, are not as prone to longevity as maybe the ones that come in saline. Another option is uh, calvarial bone. The problem with this that I find is it's extremely stiff and can really make the nose very, very hard. Uh, and it may be more prone to extrusion because of that. In addition, bone as a material is very vascular. I think we tend not to think of it that way, but it really has a lot of blood vessels in it. And when we use it as a graft, we strip away that periosteum and we carve it and then put it in uh, its recipient site. Um, but when I've removed rib, or sorry, calvarial bone from people in the past, it often looks like it melted a little bit. And I think that that's some of that resorption. Um, so uh, in my mind, that's not an ideal material. The other thing is that you tend to have to plate it or screw it into place 
uh, and then that adds more foreign material to the nose. So my preference is very much for autologous rib cartilage. You can use uh, alloplastic materials uh, such as uh, expanded polytetrafluoroethylene, uh, commonly known as Gore-Tex. This may allow some uh, uh, tissue sort of integration. Uh, there's silicone, which forms a capsule. Uh, there are other, uh, there's porous polyethylene. Uh, this definitely allows some tissue to grow into it. Um, but I'm not a fan of uh, many of these alloplastic materials, primarily because uh, with a little bit of practice, it's quite straightforward to get plenty of cartilage from the rib. Um, other adjunctive things that you can get are things like temporalis fascia or perichondrium from the ear or from the rib um, or um, acellular dermis. Uh, the drawback to acellular dermis is that it's really only temporary. It does resorb. So it may be good for camouflage or even a little bit of bulk in the short term, but I wouldn't count on it as a long-term solution. We discussed osteotomies a bit, but this can be a source of confusion for many residents. Could you briefly review what these different osteotomies are and how you utilize them in a rhinoplasty? Sure. Um, osteotomy literally just is cutting the bone. And so there are many different places that you can make an osteotomy, and it really has everything to do with what you need to accomplish. So um, when learning about them, people tend to learn about them in sort of a procedural uh, way, whether it's with location or shape or something like that. But really, it should be adapted uh, to the needs of the patient. So in other words, if the patient has had a fracture and part of the nasal bone is pushed in, uh, you may need to make an osteotomy in the middle of that so that you can make that concavity flat or a little bit convex. Um, so don't worry too much about um, uh, all the names, things like that. It's important to learn, uh, but don't just apply the same template to every patient. In general, though, when we talk about osteotomies, we tend to refer to them as being medial. And so these are cuts in the nasal bones that free the nasal bones from the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid. Uh, and these are typically done first. So in general, you wanna work your way from medial to lateral. Um, and if the nose is shifted off to one side, it's more helpful to lateralize the medialized bone first uh, and then bring the rest of the nose over. So you kind of think about it as getting that out of the way. Many people will refer to this as the open book technique. So it's kind of like you're you know, getting that page or cover of the book out of the way uh, and making room for the lateralized portion of the bone. So again, a medial osteotomy starts at the junction between the nasal bone and the septum, and it goes cephalically and gently makes a curve laterally. When making a medial osteotomy, you really don't want to go any higher than a line between the medial campi. Um, that can lead to a complication called a rocker deformity. Um, but as long as you stay below that line, things are pretty safe. So in contrast, lateral osteotomies are not in the nasal bones. Lateral osteotomies are in the ascending process of the maxilla. Now, this is another area where the terminology can get kind of confusing. In medicine, we tend to describe things as they relate to the position of the patient. But with lateral osteotomies, they're often described as they relate to the position of the patient and the floor. So with the patient on the operating table, you might hear someone talk about doing a high-low, high osteotomy. And what this means is that looking at the patient's profile while they're on the operating table, 
it will make a gentle U shape. So the start of the lateral osteotomy is high, and as it descends into the base of that U, it goes low, and then as it gets more cephalic, it again goes high. But really, it starts sort of inferoanterior to middle posterior, and then to cephalic anterior again. But I guess that's a mouthful, so people just say high, low, high. But you could have straight ones. What people often say is low to low, or high to high, um, or high to low. And that's where it kind of depends on the shape of the nasal, the nasal pyramid, not the nasal bones, um, and what you need to do and what you need to move. So that'll just take a little bit of experience and thoughtfulness uh, to try to figure out how to solve each problem uh, with the lateral osteotomy design. Sometimes people will need intermediate osteotomies. And this is done when there's a problem with the shape. Maybe someone's had an injury and they've got a really concave or convex uh, you know, portion between where you would make the medial and lateral osteotomies. And so the only way to get that flat is to make a cut essentially through the old fracture uh, to change its shape. But because those are uh, medial to the lateral osteotomies, the order would probably be medial osteotomy, intermediate osteotomy, and then lateral osteotomy. So you don't want to do the intermediate one last because you might have a free-floating piece of bone and it'll be almost impossible uh, to make that intermediate osteotomy. A transverse osteotomy is something that I do um, pretty commonly, and this is to move a deviated central segment in the nose. So if you can imagine making medial and lateral osteotomies, which is quite common, there's a little sort of triangular portion on the dorsum between the medial osteotomies that is not mobilized. And if that's strong in someone, and it often is, when you try to move the bones over to the side to straighten out the nose, you'll get stuck on that. And so you can make a transverse osteotomy through that central segment uh, so that that's a little bit easier to move. This is often done percutaneously. So a percutaneous osteotomy is one done through the skin. A typical uh, medial osteotomy is done either through an external approach or endonasally, um, but through the nose. A typical lateral osteotomy is done uh, through the nasal vestibule by making a little incision uh, along the piriform aperture. A percutaneous osteotomy is one that's made just through the skin on the outside of the nose. You can use a percutaneous osteotomy to make a lateral osteotomy, but if you do that, you obviously don't want a long scar along the side of the nose, so you'll just make usually just one little two millimeter uh, incision with the osteotome and then slide the osteotome back and forth to complete the cut through the bone. That way you can use a two millimeter incision to make a much longer cut in the bone. Um, and so that can be a very helpful adjunct, and those scars tend to be pretty inconsequential. And one final note that I would say is that osteotomes, in my opinion, are disposable instruments. So you would never in a million years think of saving your 15 blades and sending them out to be resharpened. But this is what we often do with our osteotomes, and I don't understand why. 15 blade cuts skin. That's a lot softer than bone. If you're going to cut bone, you need sharp instruments. Uh, Dr. Dan Becker in uh, uh, Philadelphia did a great study looking at professionally sharpened osteotomes and how sharp they were. And he found professionally sharpened osteotome 
was as sharp as a new osteotome that had been used six times. So even if you get it professionally sharpened, the best you're ever going to get is one that's already been used six times. The osteotomes that I have are about $70. I think most micro debriders for sinus surgery are probably close to 300. And we don't think twice about throwing those out after one use. So what I do is I just mark my osteotomes and after they've been used six times, uh, then they get donated to the anatomy lab. But that way I always have sharp instruments. So that's a little bit of a cultural shift. I think people tend to think of them as being very valuable, uh, but they're a lot less expensive than many of the things that we only use one time. And what is the standard post-operative care after a rhinoplasty? Some people will use intranasal packing, and that might just be a little folded up piece of um, telpha, uh, or it could be some strip gauze. Um, in my experience, patients tend not to like this too much. If you use something small uh, like telpha, you can take that out after a day or two. Uh, if you have any sort of packing like that in the nose, though, it's probably good to have people on oral antibiotics to maybe help prevent toxic shock syndrome. I much prefer septal splints. I like these for several reasons. Uh, one is that they act like a bit of a barrier to help maybe help prevent synechia, which in my opinion should almost be a never event in terms of a complication. They also put a little bit of gentle pressure on the septal flaps. Um, and this, though it doesn't prevent a hematoma, it can decrease the likelihood of it. They also have a tube molded into them that the patients can breathe through. These tubes sometimes get plugged up, um, but even if that happens, I think it's not necessarily a bad thing because then there's just an amazing improvement when you take the splints out. So it really gives patients a positive outcome to really fixate on at that uh, post-op visit. If someone does get a septal hematoma and they've got splints in place, don't take the splints out. I usually use some betadine on a small cotton swab and try to clean the surface where I'm going to pass the needle, and I just put the needle right through the splint. Uh, the splint helps to compress the interceptal space, making it easier to aspirate the hematoma. Uh, and because of the recent surgery, patients feel some pressure, but it really doesn't even uh, register as sharp pain, so you don't even have to anesthetize them. Uh, and it's really an inconsequential thing to do uh, in clinic uh, after surgery. Um, but no one wants the splints to go in, or packing for that matter, when they're awake. So don't take the splints out. Just put the, put the needle right through the splint. I'll typically put a nasal splint on. I use a little thermoplastic cast, but there are other uh, aluminum uh, splints that you can bend over the nose. Um, I don't know that one design really is superior to another. That's just a place to rest glasses, and it's a nice psychological reminder that patients need to really be careful of their nose. Um, I also uh, uh, advocate that they have a, a low-sodium diet and elevate their head in order to manage the edema. I think the low-salt diet is extremely helpful and often um, under-recognized, um, and I have them really limit their activity also. Sometimes even just... Um, being up and about and going to other doctor's appointments if they're maybe from out of town. That's enough activity that it can really make things quite unpleasant for them. In general, my patients don't take more than maybe one or two doses of the prescription pain medicine that we give them. But if anybody ever calls me and says that they need a refill, I ask them what they've been doing. And almost every time they've been going to other appointments or they've just been out and about and trying to get out of the house or out of the hotel, uh, and that level of activity is often enough to be uh, somewhat uncomfortable. 
I don't advocate for cold packs uh, or ice packs, only because I don't want anything resting on those immobilized nasal bones, and I don't want uh, any condensation from those to maybe loosen up the cast. Uh, I found that if people limit their activity and limit their sodium, uh, it's really more of a nuisance than anything that's terribly uncomfortable. So I think cold packs uh, aren't, uh, they don't meet my risk-benefit criteria. But in general, one of the things that I do that I think is most helpful is that I see people back on post-op day one. That's an excellent chance to answer remaining questions, and there's almost always new questions that people will have. And most importantly, we can demonstrate to them how to do the wound care and when to stop doing the wound care. The most common wound care mistake that people make is that they just kind of give up on it too soon, uh, and they leave real awful, crusty bits of dried blood and mucosa in the nostrils. And I think that can be a big setup for infection. So showing them what the endpoint is and how persistent they need to be at the beginning is extremely helpful. Do you expect any changes in the functionality of a rhinoplasty result over time? That's a really common question that patients will have. They say, well, you know, how long is this going to last? And I think if you've done the surgery thoughtfully and, and not weakened the nose in key areas, uh, and hopefully strengthen the nose in other key areas, in the absence of trauma, it should be a lifetime operation. So they, it's not the sort of thing that they need to get redone every 10 years or something. And what are the major complications to look out for with a rhinoplasty? Well, I think that the thing that's most catastrophic would be an infection. And luckily, I think with uh, proper uh, intraoperative technique, uh, irrigating the nose during surgery, I use betadine swabs in the nostrils when we prep the patient, um, in addition to just prepping the skin and everything else that will be in the surgical field. Uh, they get the standard antibiotic prophylaxis, uh, IV, and then uh, for a rhinoplasty, I tend to give them postoperative antibiotics. And then, as I mentioned, the wound care, um, all of those things really contribute to a low infection rate. Um, but if someone has an infection, and it's most likely, if they're going to get it, to happen during week two, maybe week three, I always tell people at the one-week visit that they, they're not out of the woods yet. They need to be really attentive. And if they're getting worse in any way, I want to know about right away because an infection is not something that you should just extend their antibiotic prescription and say, come see me in another week. Uh, if they have an abscess, that abscess will absolutely destroy whatever cartilage is in the nose. So it needs to be drained, irrigated. I take them back to the operating room. Uh, don't underestimate the severity of an infection after rhinoplasty. Other things that can happen, which are also not very common, uh, are things like epistaxis, uh, septal perforation, which in my opinion should be a never event. Um, I think that a septal perforation is a completely avoidable thing. Um, sometimes if you try to fix a septal perforation and it doesn't work, that's a little bit different, but I think that making a perforation of the septum with proper technique uh, and prevention uh, has the possibility to, to be a uh, never event. Septal hematoma, those are a little bit more common. Um, but as I said, if you just uh, uh, aspirate them right through the splints, uh, it's really kind of nothing more than a nuisance that you can catch on post-op day one. Um, some people will advocate making a little uh, opening in one of the mucosal flaps to help prevent the hematoma. This can be helpful, but I found that in many cases, just due to the angle of the, the scalpel, what you end up making is sort of like a little valve, 
and it may open things up uh, during surgery and you can fit a section in there. Uh, but the problem is that as soon as you put the splints in or anything else, because it goes through the mucosa at an angle, it tends to seal up and it, so it may just give you a false sense of security. Other things that are very rare, things like skin necrosis, that's more common if someone's had multiple surgeries on their nose and maybe you're needing to project into that skin uh, and make the nose bigger. Uh, so you do need to counsel patients about that, but that, again, should be extremely rare. Uh, some people have transient epiphora just from the nasal obstruction uh, that they have from the splints or the packing. You can have graft uh, extrusion or infection, uh, or sometimes the graft can uh, become displaced. Maybe they get bumped in the nose or something like that. There's a uh, risk of donor site morbidity, again, infection, bleeding, and if you're getting uh, rib cartilage, there's a risk of pneumothorax. But I think that if you harvest the rib cartilage in a way that you leave the perichondrium down on the deep surface, uh, the risk of a pneumothorax, uh, pneumothorax is extremely rare. Some people may want to have a revision, uh, and this is not always due to a complication necessarily. Um, perhaps they have a palpable edge of a graft uh, inside the nostril. A lot of times people will feel the edge of Taylor batten graft, for example, and so as a preventive measure, it's helpful to try to bevel those edges and, and try to minimize anything that's kind of blocky or bulky. Um, you can turn those things under local anesthesia, typically in the clinic. Um, and so revisions aren't necessarily uh, necess doing the whole surgery over again, um, but it might just be some sort of a little touch-up. And historically in the literature, maybe 10-15% of rhinoplasties uh, result in some sort of revision. Um, but it's helpful to at least tell patients about that up front so that they're at least prepared for that as a possibility. Now, there's a conventional wisdom that you typically have to wait a year before proceeding with a revision, and I don't think that that's necessarily true. The benefit to waiting is if you think that you might need to do something that you need to judge the contour of the nose underneath some of the remaining edema, then perhaps it's better to wait a little bit longer. But if someone has a palpable edge of a batten graft inside their nostril, you don't need to make them wait a year uh, with that. You can just address that, um, you know, even a couple of months after surgery. In terms of follow-up, for how long do you typically follow these patients postoperatively? If someone has a rhinoplasty for breathing, I think it's helpful to follow them long-term. In my practice, sometimes that's a little impractical because they're often coming from a great distance. And so I do feel a little bit guilty asking someone maybe to spend 12 hours in the car or buy a plane ticket just so that I can say hi to them and maybe get some post-operative photos. So it doesn't always work out that I get to see them. But in an ideal world, I would see people long-term. And I typically see people at, as I said, a day uh, and then a week and then maybe three months, six months, 12 months, and then annually after that. The reason that it's so helpful to see people long-term is because your results, though they don't necessarily um, you know, need to be redone, as we mentioned earlier, they can evolve and change a little bit. And uh, the inevitable and appropriate scar contracture and shrinkage of the soft tissue envelope over the nose can take several years to happen. And so you may notice changes that occur over several years. And from a self-education perspective, that's exceedingly valuable information to have. So if you only see people, you know, at a month and then never again, you really won't 
ever see your own long-term results. And that's a very valuable learning tool. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to mention or think we should go over? I hope that this episode has been helpful for your listeners because this is a, an unbelievably broad and deep topic and honestly is a little bit too much information to cover uh, in just one episode of a podcast. But hopefully I've highlighted some of the things that are common sticking points that maybe are imprecise language or concepts that often aren't explained thoroughly. And hopefully I can demystify some of these things for your listeners. I think that rhinoplasty is a wonderful operation that can provide for some of the most satisfied, happy patients. Uh, I probably get more hugs and tears uh, after this sort of surgery than I do for anything else. Uh, so it's extremely rewarding from a patient care perspective. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hamilton. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. To briefly summarize, rhinoplasty for improvement of nasal breathing is performed for a variety of reasons, both in terms of patient symptoms and the pathophysiologic underpinnings behind their breathing difficulty, which can include mucosal and sensory etiologies as well as structural causes. A careful assessment of nasal anatomy and the interplay between these structures is a very complex process and needs to be meticulously evaluated in each patient for surgical planning. Patients should be assessed for history of nasal trauma and prior nasal surgeries, as well as other comorbidities, such as allergy or other sources of nasal mucosal swelling, granulomatous disease, vasculitis, certain infectious diseases, or cocaine use. And pre- and post-operative photo documentation should be obtained, both for surgical planning and for outcome tracking. We discussed a variety of different surgical options to widen the internal and external nasal valves, correct saddle nose deformity, and correct septal deviation. We also discussed options for graft harvest and placement, as well as thoughtful use, usage of osteotomies to achieve our surgical goals. Postoperatively, most patients are splinted externally and with septal splints internally if septoplasty was performed and the surgeon can consider other post-op care precautions like a low-sodium diet, head-of-bed elevation, intranasal packing, and activity restriction. And now, on to our question portion of the episode. As always, I'll ask the question, wait a moment to give you time to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then give the answer. First off, which structures form the internal and external nasal valves, respectively? The internal nasal valve is formed by the nasal septum medially, the upper lateral cartilage and piriform aperture laterally, and the inferior turbinate inferiorly. The external nasal valve is caudal to this, bounded laterally by the piriform aperture and complex of the ala and lateral crews of the lower lat, superiorly by the upper lat, and medially by the septum and columella. Second, Describe the tripod model of nasal structure. The tripod model, originally described by Jack Anderson in the late 1960s, describes the interdependence of the lower lateral cartilages in tip support. The three legs of the tripod are the paired medial crura and the two individual lateral crura. Moving one affects the positioning of all three. 
Finally, we discussed a number of surgical options for targeting the internal and external nasal valves. Try and name three options for widening each valve. A number of options exist for widening the internal and external nasal valves. To widen the internal nasal valves, we discussed septoplasty, spreader grafts and flaps, flaring sutures, butterfly grafts, and turbinoplasty. To widen the external nasal valve, we can consider caudal septoplasty, lateral suspension suture, lateral curl repositioning, or lateral curl flip-flop, and grafts, either alar batten grafts or lateral curl stroke grafts. As you can imagine, the technique chosen for widening the valve depends on the underlying cause for a valve collapse. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.